Chapter Twenty of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Six: Wages. Chapter Twenty, Time Wages. Wages themselves again take many forms, a fact not recognizable in the ordinary economic treatises, which, exclusively interested in the material side of the question, neglect every difference of form. An exposition of all these forms, however, belongs to the special study of wage labor, not therefore to this work. Still, the two fundamental forms must be briefly worked out here. The sale of labor power, as will be remembered, takes place for a definite period of time. The converted form under which the daily, weekly, etc., value of labor power presents itself, is hence that of time wages, therefore day wages, etc. Next, it is to be noted that the laws set forth in the seventeenth chapter on the changes in the relative magnitudes of price of labor power and surplus value pass by a simple transformation of form into laws of wages. Similarly, the distinction between the exchange value of labor power and the sum of the necessaries of life into which this value is converted now reappears as the distinction between nominal and real wages. It would be useless to repeat here, with regard to the phenomenal form, what has been already worked out in the substantial form. We limit ourselves, therefore, to a few points characteristic of time wages. The sum of money, one, which the laborer receives for his daily or weekly labor, forms the amount of his nominal wages, or of his wages estimated in value. But it is clear that according to the length of the working day, that is, according to the amount of actual labor daily supplied, the same daily or weekly wage may represent very different prices of labor, i.e., very different sums of money for the same quantity of labor. Note. The value of money itself is here always supposed constant. End note. Note. The price of labor is the sum paid for a given quantity of labor. Sir Edward West, Price of Corn and Wages of Labor, London, 1836, page 67. West is the author of the anonymous Essay on the Application of Capital to Land, by a fellow of the University College of Oxford, London, 1815. An epic-making work in the history of political economy. End note. We must, therefore, in considering time wages, again distinguish between the sum total of the daily or weekly wages, etc., and the price of labor. How, then, to find this price, i.e., the money value of a given quantity of labor? The average price of labor is found when the average daily value of the labor power is divided by the average number of hours in the working day. If, e.g., the daily value of labor power is three shillings, the value of the product of six working hours, and if the working day is twelve hours, the price of one working hour is three-twelfth shillings, or threepence. The price of the working hour thus found serves as the unit of measure for the price of labor. It follows, therefore, that the daily and weekly wages, etc., may remain the same, although the price of labor falls constantly. If, for example, the habitual working day is ten hours, and the daily value of the labor power three shillings, the price of the working hour is three and three-fifths pence. It falls to three shillings as soon as the working day rises to twelve hours, to two and two-fifths pence as soon as it rises to fifteen hours. Daily or weekly wages remain, despite all this, unchanged. 
On the contrary, the daily or weekly wages may rise, although the price of labor remains constant or even falls. If, for example, the working day is ten hours, and the daily value of labor power three shillings, the price of one working hour is three and three-fifths pence. If the laborer, in consequence of increase of trade, works twelve hours, the price of labor remaining the same, his daily wages now rise to three shillings, one and one-fifth pence, without any variation in the price of labor. The same result might follow if, instead of the extensive amount of labor, its intensive amount increased. Footnote. The wages of labor depend upon the price of labor and the quantity of labor performed. An increase in the wages of labor does not necessarily imply an enhancement of the price of labor. From fuller employment and greater exertions, the wages of labor may be considerably increased, while the price of labor may continue the same. West, Opsite, pages 67, 68, 112. The main question, how is the price of labor determined? West, however, dismisses with mere banalities. End note. The rise of the nominal day or weekly wages may therefore be accompanied by a price of labor that remains stationary or falls. The same holds as to the income of the laborer's family, as soon as the quantity of labor expended by the head of the family is increased by the labor of the members of his family. There are, therefore, methods of lowering the price of labor independent of the reduction of the nominal daily or weekly wages. Footnote. This is perceived by the fanatical representative of the industrial bourgeoisie of the eighteenth century, the author of the Essay on Trade and Commerce, often quoted by us, although he puts the matter in a confused way. It is the quantity of labor and not the price of it, he means by this the nominal daily or weekly wages, that is determined by the price of provisions and other necessaries. Reduce the price of necessaries very low, and of course you reduce the quantity of labor in proportion. Master manufacturers know that there are various ways of raising and felling the price of labor, besides that of altering its nominal amount. Opsite, pages 48 and 61. In his three lectures on the rate of wages, London, 1830, in which N. W. Sr. uses West's work without mentioning it, he says, The laborer is principally interested in the amount of wages, page 14. That is to say, the laborer is principally interested in what he receives, the nominal sum of his wages, not in that in which he gives, the amount of labor. End note. As a general law it follows that, given the amount of daily or weekly labor, etc., the daily or weekly wages depend on the price of labor, which itself varies either with the value of labor power, or with the difference between its price and its value. Given, on the other hand, the price of labor, the daily or weekly wages depend on the quantity of the daily or weekly labor. The unit measure for time wages, the price of the working hour, is the quotient of the value of a day's labor power, divided by the number of hours of the average working day. Let the latter be twelve hours, and the daily value of labor power three shillings, the value of the product of six hours of labor. Under these circumstances the price of a working hour is three pence. The value produced in it is six pence. If the laborer is now employed less than twelve hours, or less than six days in the week, e.g. only six or eight hours, he receives with this price of labor only two shillings, or one shilling sixpence a day. Footnote. The effect of such an abnormal lessening of employment is quite different from that of a general reduction of the working day enforced by law. The former has nothing to do with the absolute length of the working day, and may occur just as well in a working day of fifteen as of six hours. 
The normal price of labor is in the first case calculated on the laborer working fifteen hours, in the second case on his working six hours a day on the average. The result is therefore the same. If he in the one case is employed for only seven and a half, in the other for three hours. End note. As on our hypothesis he must work on the average six hours daily, in order to produce a day's wage, corresponding merely to the value of his labor power, as according to the same hypothesis he works only half of every hour for himself, and half for the capitalist, it is clear that he cannot obtain for himself the value of the product of six hours if he is employed less than twelve hours. In previous chapters we saw the destructive consequences of overwork. Here we find the sources of the sufferings that result to the laborer from his insufficient employment. If the hour's wage is fixed so that the capitalist does not bind himself to pay a day's or week's wage, but only to pay wages for the hours during which he chooses to employ the laborer, he can employ him for a shorter time than that which is originally the basis of the calculation of the hour wage, or the unit measure of the price of labor. Since this unit is determined by the ratio daily value of labor power over working day of a given number of hours, it, of course, loses all meaning as soon as the working day ceases to contain a definite number of hours. The connection between the paid and the unpaid labor is destroyed. The capitalist can now wring from the labor a certain quantity of surplus labor, without allowing him the labor time necessary for his own subsistence. He can annihilate all regularity of employment, and according to his own convenience, caprice, and the interest of the moment, make the most enormous overwork alternate with relative or absolute cessation of work. He can, under the pretense of paying the normal price of labor, abnormally lengthen the working day without any corresponding compensation to the laborer. Hence the perfectly rational revolt in 1860 of the London laborers, employed in the building trades, against the attempt of the capitalists to impose on them this sort of wage by the hour. The legal limitation of the working day puts an end to such mischief, although not, of course, to the diminution of employment caused by the competition of machinery, by changes in the quality of the laborers employed, and by crisis, partial or general. With an increasing daily or weekly wage, the price of labor may remain nominally constant, and yet may fall below its normal level. This occurs every time that, the price of labor, reckoned per working hour, remaining constant, the working day is prolonged beyond its customary length. If in the fraction, daily value of labor power over working day, the denominator increases, the numerator increases yet more rapidly. The value of labor power, as dependent on its wear and tear, increases with the duration of its functioning, and in more rapid proportion than the increase of that duration. In many branches of industry, where time wage is the general rule without legal limits to the working time, the habit has, therefore, spontaneously grown up of regarding the working day as normal only up to a certain point, e.g. up to the expiration of the tenth hour normal working day, the day's work, the regular hours of work. Beyond this limit the working time is overtime, and is, taking the hour as a unit measure, paid better, extra pay, although often in a proportion ridiculously small. The normal working day exists here as a fraction of the actual working day, and the latter, often during the whole year, lasts longer than the former. The increase in the price of labor with the extension of the working day beyond a certain normal limit takes such a shape in various British industries that the low price of labor during the so-called normal time 
compels the laborer to work during the better-paid overtime, if he wishes to obtain a sufficient wage at all. Legal limitation of the working day puts an end to these amenities. Footnote. The rate of payment for overtime in lace-making is so small, from one-half pence and three-quarters pence to two pence per hour, that it stands in painful contrast to the amount of injury produced to the health and stamina of the work-people. The small amount thus earned is also often obliged to be spent in extra nourishment. Child Employment Commission, Second Report, page 16, note 117, end note. Note. For example, in paper staining before the recent introduction into this trade of the Factory Act. We work on with no stoppage for meals, so that the day's work of ten and a half hours is finished by 4.30 p.m., and all after that is overtime, and we seldom leave off working before 6 p.m., so that we are really working overtime the whole year round. Mr. Smith's Evidence in Children's Employment Commission, First Report, page 125. End note. Note. For example, in the Scotch bleaching works, in some parts of Scotland this trade, before the introduction of the Factory Act in 1862, was carried on by a system of overtime, i.e., ten hours a day were the regular hours of work, for which a nominal wage of one shilling two pence per day was paid to a man, there being every day overtime for three or four hours, paid at the rate of three pence per hour. The effect of this system, a man could not earn more than eight shillings per week when working the ordinary hours. Without overtime pay they could not earn a fair day's wages. Report of the Inspector of Factories, April thirtieth, 1863, page 10. The higher wages, for getting adult males to work longer hours, are a temptation too strong to be resisted. Report of the Inspector of Factories, April thirtieth, 1848, page 5. The bookbinding trade in the City of London employs very many young girls from fourteen to fifteen years old, and that under indentures which prescribe certain definite hours of labor. Nevertheless, they work in the last week of each month until ten, eleven, twelve, or one o'clock at night, along with the older laborers, in a very mixed company. The masters tempt them by extra pay and supper, which they eat in neighboring public houses. The great debauchery thus produced among these young immortals, Children's Employment Commission, 5th Report, page 44, note 191, is compensated by the fact that among the rest many Bibles and religious books are bound by them. End note. Note. See Reports of the Inspector of Factories, 30th April, 1863, page 10. With very accurate appreciation of the state of things, the London laborers employed in the building trades declared, during the great strike and lockout of 1860, that they would only accept wages by the hour under two conditions. One, that with the price of the working hour, a normal working day of nine and ten hours respectively should be fixed, and that the price of the hour for the ten hours working day should be higher than that for the hour of the nine hours working day. Two, that every hour beyond the normal working day should be reckoned as overtime, and proportionally more highly paid. End note. It is a fact generally known that, the longer the working days in any branch of industry, the lower are the wages. A. Redgrave, factory inspector, illustrates this by a comparative review of the twenty years from 1839 to 1859, according to which wages rose in the factories under the Ten Hours Law, whilst they fell in the factories in which the work lasted fourteen to fifteen hours daily. Footnote. It is a very notable thing, too, that where long hours are the rule, small wages are also. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 31st October, 1863, page 9. 
the work which obtains the scanty pittance of food is, for the most part, excessively prolonged. Public Health, 6th Report, 1864, page 15. End note. Note. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 30th of April, 1860, page 3132. End note. From the law, the price of labor being given, the daily or weekly wage depends on the quantity of labor expended. It follows, first of all, that the lower the price of labor, the greater must be the quantity of labor, or the longer must be the working day for the laborer to secure even a miserable average wage. The lowness of the price of labor acts here as a stimulus to the extension of the labor time. Footnote. The hand-nail makers in England, for example, have, on account of the low price of labor, to work fifteen hours a day in order to hammer out their miserable weekly wage. It's a great many hours in a day, six a.m. to eight p.m., and he has to work hard all the time to get eleven pence or one shilling, and there is the wear of the tools, the cost of firing, and something for waste-iron to go out of this, which takes off altogether two and a half pence or three pence. Children's Employment Commission, Third Report, page 136, note 671. The women earn by the same working time a week's wage of only five shillings. First C, page 137, note 674. On the other hand, the extension of the working time produces, in its turn, a fall in the price of labor, and with this a fall in the day's or week's wages. The determination of the price of labor is given by the daily value of labor power over working day of a given number of hours which shows that a mere prolongation of the working day lowers the price of labor, if no compensation steps in. But the same circumstances which allow the capitalist in the long run to prolong the working day also allow him first, and compel him finally, to nominally lower the price of labor until the total price of the increased number of hours is lowered, and therefore the daily or weekly wage. Reference to two circumstances is sufficient here. If one man does the work of one and a half or two men, the supply of labor increases, although the supply of labor power on the market remains constant. The competition thus created between the laborers allows the capitalist to beat down the price of labor, whilst the falling price of labor allows him, on the other hand, to screw up still further the working time. Note. If a factory hand, for example, refused to work the customary long hours, he would very shortly be replaced by somebody who would work any length of time, and thus be thrown out of employment. Reports of Inspectors of Factories, 30th April, 1848. Evidence, page 39, note 58. If one man performs the work of two, the rate of profits will generally be raised, in consequence of the additional supply of labor having diminished its price. Senior, 1st C, page 15, end note. Soon, however, this command over abnormal quantities of unpaid labor, i.e., quantities in excess of the average social amount, becomes a source of competition amongst the capitalists themselves. A part of the price of the commodity consists of the price of labor. The unpaid part of the labor price need not be reckoned in the price of the commodity. It may be presented to the buyer. This is the first step to which competition leads. The second step to which it drives is to exclude also from the selling price of the commodity at least a part of the abnormal surplus value created by the extension of the working day. In this way, an abnormally low selling price of the commodity arises, at first sporadically, and becomes fixed by degrees, a lower selling price which henceforward becomes the constant basis of a miserable wage for an excessive working time, 
as originally it was the product of these very circumstances. This movement is simply indicated here, as the analysis of competition does not belong to this part of our subject. Nevertheless, the capitalist may, for a moment, speak for himself. In Birmingham there is so much competition of masters, one against another, that many are obliged to do things as employers that they would otherwise be ashamed of, and yet no more money is made, but only the public gets the benefit. Footnote. Children's Employment Commission, Third Report, Evidence, page 66, note 22. End note. The reader will remember the two sorts of London bakers, of whom one sold the bread at its full price, the full-priced bakers, the other below its normal price, the underpriced, the undersellers. The full price denounced their rivals before the Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry. They only exist now by first defrauding the public, and next getting eighteen hours' work out of their men for twelve hours' wages. The unpaid labor of the men was made, the source whereby the competition was carried on, and continues so to this day. The competition among the master bakers is the cause of the difficulty in getting rid of night work. An underseller, who sells his bread below the cost price according to the price of flour, must make it up by getting more out of the labor of the men. If I got only twelve hours' work out of my men, and my neighbor got eighteen or twenty, he must beat me in the selling price. If the men could insist on payment for overwork, this would be set right. A large number of those employed by the undersellers are foreigners and youths, who are obliged to accept almost any wages they can obtain. Note report, etc., relative to the grievances complained of by the journeyman bakers, London, 1862, page 411, and Ibid, Evidence, Notes 479, 357, 27. Anyhow, the full-priced bakers, as was mentioned above, and as their spokesman, Bennett himself admits, make their men generally begin work at 11 p.m., up to 8 o'clock the next morning. They are then engaged all day long, as late as 7 o'clock in the evening. First see, page 22, and note. This Jeremiad is also interesting because it shows how the appearance of only the relations of production mirrors itself in the brain of the capitalist. The capitalist does not know that the normal price of labor also includes a definite quantity of unpaid labor, and that this very unpaid labor is the normal source of his gain. The category of surplus labor time does not exist at all for him, since it is included in the normal working day, which he thinks he has paid for in the day's wages. But overtime does exist for him, the prolongation of the working day beyond the limits corresponding with the usual price of labor. Face to face with his underselling competitor, he even insists upon extra pay for this overtime. He again does not know that this extra pay includes unpaid labor, just as well as does the price of the customary hour of labor. For example, the price of one hour of the twelve hours working day is three pence, say the value product of half a working hour, whilst the price of the overtime working hour is four pence, or the value product of two-thirds of a working hour. In the first case, the capitalist appropriates himself one-half, in the second, one-third of the working hour, without paying for it. End of chapter 20